And kids can be dismissed now through sixth grade, back to the meadow, or are more than welcome to stay in worship with their families here. I'm Mike Stroh, one of the other pastors here. I want to add my word of welcome to any guests who may be with us. We're so glad that you're here uh, to worship with us as we turn to God's word. Well, if you own a TV, you've surely seen one of these home renovation shows. You know what I'm talking about, right? Every network now has their own, and now there's whole networks devoted to home renovation, home improvement. They're taking over. There's a huge audience for these shows. Maybe some of you here are a little bit obsessed with home renovation shows. Is there anybody like that here? Anybody willing to be? Okay, I see some people pointing to their spouses. I see those hands. We'll pray for you. Thank you. There's a huge draw to these shows, isn't there? Part of it is the before and after. At first you see a house that's run down, the paint's peeling, things are falling apart, it's outdated, and then by the end of the show, there's this big reveal. A new, beautiful, totally transformed, renovated home. It looks so completely different often, they have to show you the before picture again just to prove it's the same place. We're drawn to transformation. We're drawn to seeing transformation. But there's something between the before and the after in these shows, isn't there? And in real life. It's quite a bit between the before and after. There's days, often months, of hard work, hard labor. One of those days is called Demolition Day. That's when the sledgehammers come out. That's when the old drywall, it's when the outdated cabinets are ripped out and destroyed. Now, in real life, demo day is often more than a day. It's more than a five-minute montage, and it's often not quite as fun as they make it look on TV. It's hard labor. It's messy. It's dusty. See, all the old has to be cleared away to make room for the new. You can't skip demo day. If you truly want a renovated home, you can't just paint over You can't just cover up that which is moldy, decayed, falling apart. You have to clear it away to make room for the new. Now, in the book of Zephaniah, God shows us a before and after picture of the world. It's a dramatic transformation. See, God has a plan for renovation, for renewal. He intends to make all things new. But as Zephaniah reminds us, as several of the prophets we've been seeing in recent weeks tell us, that can only happen when the ugliness, when the evil is swept away first to make room for the new. Getting there requires a just God to act justly. When that day comes, there will be incredible restoration, renewal. We continue our series through the Minor Prophets. We've called Live Justly, Love Mercy. We've been seeing the heart of God and how these prophets hold together God's justice and his love in his perfect nature. Well, this week we turn to the book of Zephaniah. I preached a couple of weeks ago on Nahum, and a few of you said to me after the service, you know, that's, I think, the only sermon on Nahum I've ever heard in my life. Well, we come this morning to another of these more lesser-known prophets, If you don't know where Zephaniah is in your Bible, I'll give you a head start. Start turning there right now. If you're using an electronic Bible, that's cheating. 
But if you don't know where it is, I'll give you a head start now. We'll be looking there in just a moment. And chances are you've maybe never heard a sermon on Zephaniah before. And that, frankly, takes a little bit of the weight off me as a preacher. I don't feel like I have to work very hard to make this the best sermon on Zephaniah you've ever heard. So here we go. But I hope this morning we'll come away seeing what a rich book this is. And again, let's not let the judgment that we see in this book turn us away. That'd be like watching one of these home improvement shows and turning it off during demo day, right? Not sticking around for the final reveal. But if we really dig into this book, if we stick around for the till, till the end, we'll see Zephaniah gives us one of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture of the coming blessing on God's people. Zephaniah lays out some incredible promises of God that don't just tell us what's coming, but actually inform how we live right now while we wait for those promises to be fully fulfilled. See, now we're living in the before while we wait for the after. And Zephaniah shows us how the faithful remnant should wait. Let's pray together as we turn to God's word. Well, Father, we come before you in total dependence as we do every week, every day, every moment. When we come together this morning in worship, there is much in our minds, much in our hearts. There is turmoil and heartache all around the world. There is heartache in our hearts. There is grief. And I pray in these few moments that we have together this morning that you would draw us together to your word, to receive the truth, to receive your grace, to be transformed by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you found the book of Zephaniah, let's look there. Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 1. The word of the Lord that came... To Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, king, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So as we've been seeing the last few weeks with some of these other minor prophets, most of what we know about him comes from just this verse. And here is the longest genealogy of any of the prophets in the Bible. And this is significant because of the names involved. Maybe a couple of them look familiar to you. Zephaniah is actually the great-grandson of King Hezekiah. That makes him likely a cousin or a distant relative of King Josiah, who was reigning during Zephaniah's ministry. This would make Zephaniah the only prophet with such a high social standing, being related uh, to royalty. But if you're familiar with King, King Josiah, you know he's responsible for many reforms in his day, trying to turn Uh, the idolatrous and wicked people back to God. Zephaniah's preaching may have been largely responsible for that. Zephaniah's ministry may have had a lot to do with Josiah's awakening spiritually and his reforms. Zephaniah was a contemporary of Nahum, who we saw a couple of weeks ago. He was a contemporary of Habakkuk and Jeremiah, who we heard in the call to worship. Now, Zephaniah, though, was the very last prophet to preach before the fall of Jerusalem and the captivity in Babylon. Zephaniah's name means the Lord will hide. And that may speak to the time he was born, may speak to God protecting this child being born during the reign of evil, wicked King Manasseh. But he also uses his name as a play on words in the book. If you have the text in front of you, flip over to chapter 2. And verse 3, 
He writes, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden. And there's his name right there. Perhaps you may be hidden in on the day of the anger of the Lord. So as we see also in this verse is the book's major focus, the day, the day of the Lord. This day is mentioned directly in Scripture at least 26 times, and most of them occur in this tiny book of Zephaniah. So the day of the Lord is his major theme. The day of the Lord is that final coming day when God will stand as judge over all nations, and he will set up his eternal kingdom. So there's both aspects of the day of the Lord, and several of the prophets we've studied so far, if you've been tracking with us, have emphasized oftentimes one of those sides of the day, haven't they? The judgment or the blessing. Well, Zephaniah treats really both sides of that day more fully than most other prophets, even as brief as his book is. So as you skim through the book, especially the first large section of the book, you'll see a lot of judgment. There's judgment coming at this time. There was judgment coming on the nations. There was judgment coming on Judah very soon in history with the exile, almost being a small day of the Lord, if you will, that points to that ultimate day. But remember, we have to keep reminding ourselves, let's not dismiss this, these judgment passages as just doom and gloom, just to pass over and get to something encouraging. But remember, this is a just God acting justly, finally bringing perfect peace and justice to the world. As we saw in Nahum, for God to save the oppressed, he has to do something with the oppressor, doesn't he? So Zephaniah starts with judgment, both on the nations and on Judah, but he ends his book with this incredible picture of restoration, of blessing. If you didn't get a chance this week to read through the whole book of Zephaniah, I encourage you to do so. We'll just spend our time this morning mostly at the end, this beautiful after picture. It's not only beautiful, but it speaks to us today as believers. Trying to follow Christ in this fallen world, Zephaniah points us where all this is headed, and he shows us how we're supposed to wait for that after, for that final restoration. So turn to chapter 3 now. We'll spend the rest of our time in chapter 3. Chapter 3, starting in verse 5. We'll read a few verses here to get the context. And this is right before Zephaniah pivots his message to the judgment side of the day of the Lord to the blessing side. So let's get the context here. Chapter 3, starting in verse 5. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Every dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. Verse 8. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up, there's the day, the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. So here again, we see God's nature as perfectly just. And he intends to make the world reflect his own nature, his perfect justice. All the earth being consumed here is pretty grim. Sounds pretty final. And if we stopped the book there, if we stopped it, that'd be like stopping on demo day, wouldn't it? The destruction, the judgment. But as we read on, we discover this is just God clearing the way for what's to come, the blessing that he intends. 
to bring. Look at verse 9. Right here is the pivot point. Here's where the message shifts. Verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Notice the judgment that comes as a direct result, as it always is, of human sin, of human injustice. But as we just saw in these verses, who's the one responsible for the blessing? It's God. It's entirely God's initiative, God's grace. Notice it's not the people changing themselves. God wants to bless. What does he do? He says, I will change their speech to a pure speech. I will do what needs to be done. I will change hearts as God alone can do. We as believers, we've been given a taste of this, what God will do one day more, much more broadly. Jesus says in John 4, the Father is looking for true worshipers. And Zephaniah talks about the day when that true worship will be established in this world. Verse 12, again, it's all God's work. He says, I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. This is the faithful remnant. To be forever established in that day. And in that day and today, humility is what characterizes God's people. It's a fitting reminder there's no place in God's kingdom, not then and not now, for an attitude of pride, of arrogance. And these words, humble and lowly, have connection to poverty and powerlessness, being of low station. We've got to remember, these are not God's judgment as we might mistake him when they happen to us in our lives, but here it's God's care. It speaks to God's care for his impoverished, lowly people. You can hear this theme echoed in the words of Jesus, his own portrait of the kingdom and what kingdom citizens look like. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what this doesn't mean, of course, is that only the materially poor inherit the kingdom, but it's this attitude of total dependence. It's non-negotiable for God's people, especially maybe for us in our American context, when we individually, when we collectively as the church are tempted to grasp for power, for wealth, for control in this world. We need to hear Zephaniah. We need to hear Jesus. See, God's people by nature don't seek refuge in the world's wealth, in the world's power systems. Verse 12, instead we seek refuge in the Lord. Verse 13 describes these people, this remnant. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies. In other words, they're much like their God, whose nature is to only do justice whose nature is to keep his promises. Look at verse 13 again. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. What a picture that is. 
One commentator writes, when the creator is worshipped and served as he ought to be, paradise is regained. Paradise is regained. So this perfect peace, just think about all that's going on in our world right now. Think about all that's going on in your own life right now. This image is almost unimaginable. We almost can't relate to this at all, but it's coming. Zephaniah tells us it's coming, and that should change how we live now. That should change now how we face all of this uncertainty and all of this turmoil and all of this grief. Because no matter what happens to us personally, no matter what happens to our country, even our world, we are forever established in God's kingdom. What does Paul say in Colossians chapter 1? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. See, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are transferred to another kingdom. We are delivered. We are transferred. Our citizenship is put there in the kingdom of Christ forever, secure, unchanging. And people who are perfectly secure have no need to run after the things of this world, the power, the wealth, the status, because those are just temporary anyway. Those are just illusions. Instead, Zephaniah tells us our refuge is in God, the unchanging God, whose kingdom is unshakable. And so that should increase our trust no matter what's happening around us. And it should also increase our joy. Another thing in short supply these days, joy. Look at verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. These four verses are a short, self-contained little song that Zephaniah gives us, and it's really the climax of the book. God's people commanded to sing aloud, to rejoice. Zephaniah looks to this future day and says there is cause for celebration. Why? Verse 15, for one thing, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. That's very good news. Demolition day is over. Remember, God said, not only am I going to forgive your sin, but I'm, I'm actually going to change your heart. That's the new covenant promises. This amazing truth that filled Zephaniah with such joy is even greater for us today who know how Jesus has perfectly fulfilled these words. When Jesus died on the cross, he said what? It is finished. God's judgment perfectly satisfied. God's grace poured out for all people. And as believers secure in God's kingdom, we know there is no condemnation, as Paul says in Romans 8, for those in Christ. So if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want you to consider this morning what the finished work of Christ means for you. He died for you. He rose again to make a way for you to be reconciled with God 
and become part of his kingdom forever. It's not something you work for. It's God's initiative. It's God's grace. You have to just receive it. And Zephaniah gives us another cause for joy. Verse 15 and repeated again in verse 17. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. The presence of God forever with his people. No more barriers between us. This is the fulfillment of God's heart, God's desire. When he says all through the Old and New Testament, we heard it this morning in Jeremiah, it's dozens of times in the Bible, I will be their God and they shall be my people. The heart of God for us. This too is fulfilled in Christ. We have a taste of this even now. Remember when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was ripped in half symbolizing that separation between a sinful people and a holy God, forever taken down, the barrier removed. Christ has taken away the sin that separated us from God, and now we have total access to our Father as beloved sons and daughters. As we wait for his coming and the full fulfillment of this prophecy, we have Christ in us now through the Holy Spirit. The Lord is in our midst. Zephaniah tells us there is no greater reason to have joy. Because God is with us, we have no reason to fear. Fear not, he says in verse 16. So if we are secure in God's kingdom, if we have been freed from condemnation in Christ, and if the presence of God is with us now and forever as promised, what reason do we have to fear? I want you to think for just a moment about what you fear the things that you tend to fear. There's a lot of accusing going on lately about what other people fear, but I want to know what you fear. I want you to think about your own personal fears. I want you to ask yourself, which of your fears are not covered by these promises? And that includes any fear about the coming day of the Lord, if you know Christ. Those in rebellion against God, those persisting in doing evil and injustice, have reason to fear. Zephaniah is clear, but God's people do not. I saw a social media post this week from Dallas Seminary theology professor Michael Spiegel. I found his perspective helpful in this regard. He says, Theology 101, no passage of Scripture directs Christians to prep for the Antichrist. But numerous passages instruct them to await Christ's return. It's a real problem if your end times expectations are antichrist-centered fear rather than Christ-centered hope. So I guess the question we need to ask ourselves is, are we secure or not? If everything falls apart in your life tomorrow, God forbid, but if it does... Are you still securing Christ or not? If our country collapses tomorrow, God forbid, but if it does, are we secure in our eternal citizenship or not? We could say, but, but you don't know what's going on in the world right now. You don't know what I'm facing in my own life right now. What was going on in Zephaniah's world as he wrote these words? Jerusalem was about to fall to Babylon. His people were about to be dragged away into exile. Talk about hopeless circumstances, but he says, sing aloud, shout, rejoice. 
He's not talking about ignoring our problems. He's not talking about just putting a smile on our face. He's talking about facing the problems in our lives and in the world in a whole new way, in a whole new light, because of God's promises. So we see what a difference that we can show the world when we have this joy, this deep abiding joy that isn't shaken by temporary things. When we live with such a peace because our refuge is in God and not the temporary things of this world. When we're so secure in the love of Christ, we can move towards someone we disagree with in humility. Not in pride, not the need to correct them or shut them down, but in love and humility because we're so secure in the love that we have been given. When our hearts are open to this uncomfortable often painful work of renovation that God wants to do and is doing in all of our hearts. This is how God's people are supposed to wait. This is how God's people are supposed to live right now. As Paul says in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. He repeats himself here, because we need to hear it over and over and over again. We need to point ourselves to the joy that is ours. There is cause for celebration, Zephaniah says, even as the world's falling apart around him. And Zephaniah closes this song with God himself singing. Let's try to soak that in for a moment. In parallel to the command for us to sing at the beginning of this song, verse 17, He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. If this is not God's heart on display, I don't know what is. God's great joy. Why? The thought of being forever with his people. We tend to have some very distorted ideas about what God the Father is really like, don't we? Maybe because of our religious background, because of our upbringing, just our own sin nature. We would do well this week to just sit with these words, God's heart for us. Meditate this week on this image of God singing over you. Whatever worries, whatever anxieties or grief are on your heart, letting God, by his spirit, quiet you with his love. Knowing the God of all the earth rejoices over you. He delights in you. He longs for the day when all things will be made new and he will be with us forever. I will be their God and they will be my people. The heart of God. I read an article this week that tried to answer the question about why those home renovation shows are so incredibly popular. They listed several reasons. One big one, though, was the predictability That seems counterintuitive at first, but it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Because you know every single episode, no matter how they get there, you're going to see the before and you're going to see the after. You're going to see something transformed. There's a real certainty, and I think we're drawn to that, aren't we? The believer looks toward the future with the same certainty, even more certainty. Of course, there's surprises. There's plenty of unknowns along the way, but we know how the story ends. We know what the after pictures look like, uh, the after picture looks like. We don't know all the details. There's plenty we don't know, but God's given us enough 
of the picture to make us rejoice with all our hearts while we wait. Would you pray with me? I close with a prayer by Joseph Allen. You, God, came to redeem us as a people for yourself. You have confirmed us to yourself to be a people for you forever. And you, Lord, have become our God. Wonder, O heavens, and be moved, O earth, at this great thing. The tabernacle of God is with us, and you will dwell with us, and we will be your people, and you yourself will be with us and be our God. We are astonished and ravished with wonder, for the infinite breach is made up. The offender is received, God and man reconciled, a covenant of peace entered into. Heaven and earth are all agreed upon the terms. Look, here is wonder of wonders, for you have betrothed yourself forever to your hopeless captives. You declare the marriage before all the world. You become one with us and we with you. You've given us the precious things of heaven above and the precious things of the earth. You've kept back nothing from us. And now, O Lord, you are that God and your words are true. You have promised this goodness to your servants and they and have left us nothing to ask from your hands except what you have freely granted already. And so, Father, establish forever the word which you have spoken concerning us. Do as you have said. Let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts, he is the God of Israel. Amen. Let us stand together.